Hello and welcome. This is Jonathan Mistowski recording the inaugural podcast for Agile Acquisitions. On today's episode, I thought I would talk about Agile development and how it differs from traditional waterfall development. So there's a lot of talk in the current federal market space about modifying the way the government procures software. And the trend is definitely moving towards agile acquisitions and agile software development. This is a great victory for those of us who've been involved in pushing for this culture change for the last eight years. The fact that now when I show up to speaking events, you know, it's kind of in the, in the common vernacular that agile adoption is what's necessary and the agile methodologies that were seemingly crazy a few years back are now becoming more and more mainstream. But as agile adoption is increasing, the risk of agile adoption being poorly executed and confirming sort of preconceived biases of those who have pushed back against these sort of changes becomes higher and higher risk. So it's important to understand you know, what Agile really is. It is not as simple as writing a contract or a requirements document using buzzwords as we see now in sort of failed executions of modifying existing programs. We'll see Agile development within a waterfall, and that's just not the same thing. It doesn't accomplish the same inherent value and benefits of Agile development in its purest form. So in order to understand what Agile development is, let's first talk about what Agile development isn't by reviewing traditional waterfall acquisitions and waterfall development as it relates to software, uh, just kind of get an understanding of where we're coming from. So traditional software development in the federal government for decades has been done under what we call waterfall development. Uh, This is the idea of painstakingly writing out all of the requirements for the system in often what's called either a systems requirement document or a technical requirement document. These documents can be hundreds of pages long and go down to the very explicit details of all of the requirements that the software will fulfill. As we understand in today's world, trying to predict technology capabilities even a few months in the future is very difficult. However, waterfall attempts to make these sort of predictions sometimes even as much as 10 years in advance of when the technology will actually be delivered. This approach may have made sense uh, when hardware uh, was contemplated, a tank or a Navy ship or something along those lines, satellites where specs remain relatively constant over long periods of time. So this has been applied to software as well. And and what we ultimately have is a construct where the software requirements are drafted sometimes over one to two years, just in the drafting of the requirements. The acquisition then goes out. Acquisition timelines can take anywhere from 12 to 18 months. This is including uh, discussions with vendors, potentially rewriting based on questions and answers. But when all said and done, getting through the evaluation process, approval and award is very commonly 12 to 18 months. So between that and the requirement development phase, you're already looking at three years or more. Uh, Then you actually have the contract deliverable, the actual waterfall process itself. And this is where the vendor begins to execute on the integrated master schedule, the plan they propose to deliver the requirements in those extensive system requirement documents. Any deviation from that is actually a deviation to the contract itself. So uh, it's determined that some of the intended plan or the requirements have changed, then that actually has to go through a contract modification process so that the baseline can be modified to account for the the additional requirements or reduced requirements or the change in with development on the vendor's side 
uh, where, the, where the government is primarily only receiving documentation commonly in an earned value management system form or earned value management like form. In either case, what we're talking about is essentially cost fund status reporting, cost performance index, um, schedule performance index. All of these documents are designed around trying to give the government program management and contracting offices insight into how closely is the contractor performing to the original plan proposed. At this point, it may be one or two years prior when the proposal was originally submitted or ultimately negotiated and awarded. Nevertheless, this is the primary view that the government has into the software development process until such time that you get to the actual testing phases where the government first begins to see how the software is potentially performed uh, in the environment where it would be delivered or an environment similar to what it would be delivered in. Uh, so that's the traditional waterfall process in a very short snippet. Now we're going to take a look at the Agile process as it would compare to that. So the Agile methodology would begin with differentiating in, in what are the requirements. So instead of looking at what will the software do, the Agile process looks at what are the objectives that the software program will accomplish. And by switching uh, from, a, from a document standpoint, this is essentially the difference between a statement of work and a statement of objectives. And you'll find statements of objectives discussed under FAR 37.6, uh, which is performance-based service acquisitions. And that's essentially what we're talking about, is we're getting out of the business of telling contractors exactly how they're going to deliver. And instead, saying what we need delivered and letting the contractor bring their expertise to bear and demonstrate how they would deliver it through the actual execution. In other words, we're buying the repeatable process for the delivery of a functional product. Uh, this repeatable process is what becomes the contract requirements. So cost, schedule, and performance the Iron Triangle, as it's often referred to, still remain the contractual requirements. However, the scope portion of it is elevated to managing the process such that the process results in a product or code, for example, uh, and that that code meets a standard, which is often referred to as the definition of done. The definition of done typically takes into consideration user acceptance, code coverage, defect rates, automated testing results, and things of that nature. Uh, it's less in concerned with how much was done and more concerned with the quality of what was done. In this instance, we don't need all of the extensive reporting that was provided under the earned value management for waterfall development because instead what you're receiving is the actual product itself on a regular cadence. Typically, iterations are, are two weeks to four weeks long, and so every month or twice a month potentially or under a continuous development even more frequently than that, the government's actually seeing what it's getting for its money. So it's very clear if the, there's value being received. When we combine this approach with modular contracting for IT, which is found under FAR 39.1, uh, we can break the contract up into shorter periods of performance. I like to use six months. I think this is a really good time frame to allow the contractor to get up to speed, the government to get up to speed, and actually see if progress and value is being delivered, and also an opportunity to make corrections. So at the end of each iteration, you'll have both a sprint review and a sprint retrospective. And the sprint retrospective will look at you know, what was delivered, uh, how did the process work. But the sprint review will actually talk about are there changes that need to occur 
that can improve or modify the execution such to improve the vendor's velocity towards capacity or the rate at which they're delivering user stories. Uh, The goal, of course, is to maximize the velocity such that it's as close to the uh, capacity as possible. So as I mentioned, so in each iteration, there's this result of functional product, and we have the ability to assess the quality of that. Ultimately, what we have over time is potentially significantly less requirements because we're delivering to the end user's functional product and getting end user feedback consistently. So whereas when we sat in a vacuum under waterfall and attempted to imagine all of the possible requirements that end users might have, we have a tendency to over-engineer a problem because you, you know you only have one bite at getting all of these requirements into the contract. But under this process where the product owner drives the technical requirements and isn't forced to sort of revisit contractually all of the changes, then you have a much more efficient requirement execution such that the vendor is delivering exactly what the end user wants and what the end user needs and nothing more, nothing less. This is ideal in both a execution standpoint, but also from a financial standpoint. In the traditional waterfall contracting, we're paying for a lot of functionality that's never used. In a simplistic way to view this would be to consider Microsoft Excel. The average user of Microsoft Excel uses like 3%, 3 or 5%, I forget the exact number, of functionality capable in Excel. And only a very small population who probably would be willing to pay significantly more for it uses the extensive tool set that's available. Uh, this is similar to how government software is often developed. It's, it includes a significant amount of functionality that will never actually be used by end users. Uh, under agile development, you can avoid that. This is often seen in the actual estimation process. When you look at traditional waterfall development, the estimation a dollar value is typically very high, and that's in part because it considers lines of code, which isn't a very practical methodology for evaluating future cost of software development, but also because it compares to historical contracts that also over-delivered. But when we look at agile development cost estimation or price estimation, what we're really looking for is how many teams are we capable of managing and how much are we interested in investing. And we have a capability now to decide to proceed or pivot as the project goes on. So we may continue to invest or we may not. But the early stages, just to get to minimum viable product and maybe you know one or two releases, let's say a year or less, for a single team which can produce a considerable amount of software, you know, should be $3 million or less. And that's at, at essentially the largest size team that would be anticipated, which is around 12 people for a common iterative development teams. That taken with the idea of not producing all of this unnecessary reporting that doesn't offer value now that you're receiving products regularly, the cost of managing the project itself goes down significantly, both from the vendor side, so the contract price itself, but also from the government side who no longer has to review all of the reporting that was otherwise necessary. So really, you know, investing in agile implementation has value Uh, Not just for the end users, which of course is the most important part, but also to the stakeholders, to the investors, to ultimately the taxpayers who now have to commit less funding to receive value. So there you have it. That's the overview of agile development as it relates to traditional waterfall development. I will be continuing to make these podcasts weekly and we'll be looking to bring on guests to uh, sort of offer a different perspective and maybe get into some lively discussion. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day.